Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. There's a couple of things we know for sure. One of them is that there's something called a higher consciousness, a supreme being, a god, a higher spirit, whatever whatever we want to call that, a higher truth. That's one thing I think we know. The other thing we know for sure is that we live here on earth with our little daily lives, dealing with food, shelter, relationships, parents, expectations, jobs, and all the anxieties that come with living daily lives. So we have a tension here where we find ourselves somewhere between a higher self, these high sounding ideas and grand visions, and then we have this thing called the real world, real life. And it's a constant tension to find peace in life, to find the opportunity to look for these insights into higher consciousness. We seek to ascend, and life pulls us down. But then at the other side of things, we can't get too high into the higher consciousness because life is really all we have. So it helps to find people, I think, who've made this connection, who have managed to bring some of these high-sounding ideas of higher consciousness into their daily lives, and you have a story to tell. And that's what we have today. We're very lucky to have with us Dina Proctor, who has a new book out called Madly Chasing Peace, How I Went from Hell to Happy, in nine minutes a day and I think we're gonna find here that Dina has not only a unique story but uh, also a unique twist on how to bring some of these spirituality insights into the real world. Dina, welcome to the show. It's great having you. Oh, it's wonderful to be here with you, Philip. Thank you so much. Well, in any event, I, I really think I got your I got your message and I thought that this would be perfect because as I just said, uh, we tend to dwell on these high ideas sometimes, but unless we incorporate them into our daily lives, they may not come out to mean much. Now, in your book, which I've read, I see it as telling two stories. One story is about how you managed to sink to the depths of despair and close to and being close to suicide and the other is your is the is how you made your way back up and I really think that that that's a compelling story so I think first and I and this is important why don't you talk a little bit about how you managed to get yourself into this state of near suicidal depression mm. 
Heavy first question. <laughs> no, I know. I, I think it's important too because it's important to see where people come from, you know, and, and how we're able to overcome circumstances and create change. And I know most people listening in probably haven't sunk to the depths that I've been to, but um, I it, it's really great to hear it because you can have hope that there's, there's hope right. for your life because it probably, you know, maybe not, might not be as bad as what I went through. But basically it was about five years ago that I hit my rock bottom in my life. I had spent more than 10 years in and out of clinical depression. And it was kind of a gradual thing. It wasn't a sudden onset. Um, It was just kind of a gradual, I felt like there was a hole inside of myself that wasn't filled up. And I thought, okay, I need to fill this with, um, you know, helping, helping people. I went through a you know, working for nonprofits and going to third world countries and doing really great work in the world. But I was kind of doing it for the wrong reason. I was looking to fill myself up by helping other people. And it wasn't working to fill that void because I wasn't getting what I needed from that. I looked to change my jobs. I was looking to meet different people. I was dating different guys. I was buying new cars. I was moving to new cities. Everything I did had the intention behind it of looking to fill this hole I felt like I had inside of myself, like this dark, inescapable, um, you know, kind of black hole inside. Well, let me me stop you there for a second because I think it's important to, to... to try to identify where this black hole came from, how it arose, because this is something I think that's common to so many people. They find themselves in this in this darkness or this or this territory where they don't have any answers. And and I and did you ever identify what the source of of your uh, of your emptiness was? You know, not really. There's nothing to indicate, you know, from the way that I grew up or was raised. It's not a family thing or anything like that. It's funny because I understand why people would kind of want to look at where did this come from? How did this originate? But to me, it almost seems like it's almost like if a lamp is unplugged, we could spin around all day long, like trying to wonder how did that get unplugged? Who did this? How did this? But, you know, defining the problem is still different from being in the solution of it, right? So I couldn't even tell you Hmm. exactly where all of this depression came from. I know as a kid I was perfectionist. I always demanded a lot of myself, but I I couldn't tell you why I was Uh, like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's interesting (laughs) because sometimes, you know, we find ourselves going down these these paths that we don't control. And preparing for the show, something dawned on me uh, that I remember reading from Joseph Campbell, uh, and I think it was uh, The Power of Myth, some interview he did with Bill Moyer. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he said that really resonated with me, that I I was reminded of when I was reading your book, uh, where he said, all of life is a meditation, most of it unintentional. And (laughs) and that, that to me is really, I think, sort of a theme here, because in many instances we're not in control of our own thoughts and we tend to and we tend to go down paths that sort of whether others have told us or not is one thing but maybe the paths that you know have been uh ordained as part of culture so so maybe maybe that's maybe that's one way to look at this but 
in any event. I think that's a really, really good point and a good spin you're putting on it. And I love those Joseph Campbell interviews. I think yeah. he's brilliant. I, I, I absolutely resonate with what you're saying about it being because we're most of us think by default. It's right. kind of like, why would we question the voice in our heads? Right. You know? Right. But yeah, so I, I really understand what you're saying. So, okay, so <laughs> you reach this point or you're nearing this point of of sort of maximum depression and mm -hmm. but you're trying to fill what you thought were gaps in your life with doing things that were outside of yourself you were trying to that's help that's exactly right. right okay okay so why don't you i i sort of interrupted you there and you were talking about all these other uh missions and projects and jobs uh that you were that you were working on uh what was it that at some point you realized that that it wasn't working for you, that it was something else that was the problem? Yeah, great question. Um, because it, it's kind of like that saying, when you move, you take yourself with you. Right. And that's what I kept doing. I was doing, you know, kind of it would look like on the outside, oh, she's, she's upgrading to a different job. Oh, she's going out to help people. Oh, she's dating a new guy who's good for her. But that I was still taking my empty whole self with me. So none of these things, even though they might have looked good and well-intentioned on the outside, were really doing anything for me on the inside because what it ended up being was that I had to do interior work in order to improve my outward circumstances. That's what I know today but could not see at all yeah. back mm -hmm. then. So to answer your question, I spun out of control to rock bottom all through my 20s when I was going through my depression. You know, I, I knew something was wrong. I was going to therapy and I went to group therapy and I I tried depression medications. I was even on an experimental medication program because none of the regular <laughs> yeah, ones were yeah, working. Yeah. And just nothing I was trying was be effective for me. And towards the end of my 20s is when I discovered alcohol. I hadn't drank alcoholically all through my you know, college years or anything. It just wasn't on my radar. But I think I had just reached this point of absolute desperation in myself. Nothing's working here. I'm so you know just desperate for something. <clears throat> and I really latched on to the bottle. That's what happened to me. And when I did that, when I started drinking heavily, I started kind of selling out on my morals. I was not you know, with the right kind of guys anymore. And I found myself stealing money and I was drunk at work and I was just morally selling out. I, I had this um, detachment kind of from reality. And I reached a point where I couldn't live with who I was becoming. And that's what led me to the point where I just wanted to take my own life. And it's really a compelling, it's really a compelling story that Dina tells very well in her book, uh, madly chasing peace because it, it has such an authenticity to it and also I think that these stories even though we we have we each have our own little lives we're leading many of us have had experiences that track the same theme it, it, it may be not as severe it may be more severe but it's remarkable that you know in order to rise from the dust sometimes you've got to you've got to fall down you've got to sink and fr and frankly i don't know any people whose lives have been one continuous uninterrupted beautiful climb there's there's <laughs> always there's always some disaster or something that happens and and you at at one point were near very near suicide correct yeah i had planned a date for my own for my own to take my own life yeah. just because I had done one too many things I had crossed that line one too many times and I just thought I 
I don't think I can do this anymore. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that's remarkable. And I I really think that everybody, so many people have had have had those thoughts. And as I said, it, it, it runs a spectrum. In many instances, it's buried, or it's a fleeting thought, or it's a joke. But as I said in the beginning of the show, uh, life is not easy and this this is this is one of the lessons that i think we all we all learn the hard way you know life of hard knocks uh the one thing about suicide that i think is i I think is so important to for folks to understand at least from my perspective is that you're really you're really forgetting that each of us has a future life each of us has Mm -hmm. a future self and it really is a temporary mindset, and sometimes when it's so it's it's so deep, people carry through with it, and they do end their own lives. Yeah. But but you know, I think about the rock musicians and all these uh, distressed lovers that have you know done stupid things. If they would have waited a day or two, um, things might have been better. So so you hit rock bottom, and then there was a turning. Point. Mm-hmm. And we touched upon a little bit, but what do you think the turning point was for you? Well, it was because I had planned that date for my to take my own life, and I did that on a on a Sunday night. I decided I was going to take my life the following Saturday, so I could get everything in order at work and all of those kind of things, right? Right. And um, but that Sunday night, I didn't think I could make it that six more days. I was just so incredibly desperate, and so to make and this is this is really reflects the where I was in my thinking at this point. It's just so sad. But I thought, first of all, I had no idea I had a problem with alcohol, which is very common when people are in addiction. It's not not knowing the depth of your addiction. Um, I thought if I went and saw what real alcoholics were mm-hmm. like, quote yeah. unquote, yeah. it would make me feel better about myself. And then if I felt be- better about myself, I'd be able to make it till Saturday. I still can't really <laughs> understand how I even thought that. But really, that was very real to me that week. Yeah. So I ended up going to an addiction recovery program. I knew of one that was up the street, and I thought, oh, my gosh, if I just see how much worse it could be, that'll make me feel better. Like that was my my whole thinking at yes. that point. <laughs> Crazy. Yes. Yes. But, what? yeah, but my turning point, to kind of get back to your question, was I was I was going to these meetings and sitting in the back of the room. I didn't want to give my real name. I just wanted to be kind of really anonymous in the back. And I was listening to people stand up front and tell their stories, and I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm worse than that. Hmm. I've done worse than that. Why? That person's here. That person belongs in this room and I've done worse than that. Oh my God, could I possibly belong here? Like it was just a whole mind bend to think, could I really belong here? You know? And, um, there were people in that room, women in particular, that just saw me crying silently in the back and would just sit next to me and hold my hands and bring me tissues. And they never said a word, but they just held me and let me cry. And that depth, that human touch of in my place of desperation was a huge turning point for me. Going to those meetings that week and having the realization that maybe I do have something to learn from these rooms was the thing that had me like, you know, when you go through a recovery program, they tell you just don't drink today. You can drink, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Just worry about today. Just don't drink today. Right. But for me, it was just don't take your life today. That was how simple it got for me. But one day at a time, I was able to put weeks and then months between the date I was planning to take my life and, you know, 
current current reality, current date. Yeah, well, that's one reason <laughs> I think that one of the scourges of life is loneliness, because mm-hmm. because that voice in, in your head can do silly things if you don't have something to bounce it off of, and and I thought that was very sort of um, a, a very uh, effective. A story you tell on that because it, it told me that you have to have support and you have to have understanding. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dina Proctor, the author of the new book Madly Chasing Peace about her own transformation from alcoholism to being a life coach. And Dina, we're on this topic of your own transformation, and it's it's a really, um, really good story because you transformed yourself, and now you're transforming other people. But mm-hmm. before we get to the other people here, you you mentioned that having this touch from other people was really an important uh, transition for you. What happened next to allow you to continue the upward? climb to recovery. It's such an important point. And I like what you're saying, too. I just want to kind of put a spotlight on that feeling of loneliness. And what I learned it to be called was this terminal uniqueness. Like, mm-hmm. I thought I was so unique and so ununderstandable and unfixable that it was killing me, yeah. you know? But when I was able to just go to these rooms and not even share my story or speak my truth, but understand that other people felt how I had felt and had done these things that I had judged as like horrible things I had done, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. And that was huge for me. That was the big, big, big first step. As I said, I mean, there's nothing as powerful to know that you're not the only Mm -hmm. person with problems or with the same ideas. And it's that chatter in your head. And we're we're getting to that. But, you know, the mind will do silly things unless Mm -hmm. you control it. And a lot of people talk themselves into these deep problems. And it's sort of like if you just bounce it off of somebody, it, it all of a sudden you may realize that, you know, you're, you're, you're exaggerating or, or you're over-dramatizing something. And in fact, I think that's one of the great benefits of books like yours and books like many other others, uh, and you mentioned uh, Jack Canfield as being another uh, author with, with mm-hmm. these inspiring books. There's, and there's so many of them. But these quote-unquote self-help books, I think, have done a lot to show folks that they're not alone, that everybody goes through these problems, and that we, but we each have to have the strength to overcome them. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a, um, a critical point here. So now, at, at this point, you, you started getting some tips or you started coming upon some ideas on meditation. And what point did you find that this internal guidance system was where you had to go? 
Mm, this is getting into the good part. Love this. So what happened to me, I stayed in the addiction recovery program, putting one you know day at a time between that suicide Saturday and the present moment. A couple months later, I decided to commit to the program to leave the drink behind and focus on what these people in the room were telling me to do. And I chose a coach to take me through the program. And the first thing she told me to do was to learn to meditate. And at the time, I was atheist. I didn't believe in any of this. I certainly didn't believe in anything like meditation or levitation or whatever <laughs> on earth she was trying to tell me to do was going to be Yeah, well, they are related. You know, yeah. like, what, how on related, earth yeah. is this going to be a solution for me, right? Yeah, right. But at the same time, I had tried everything else I could think of. So I finally came around to what could it hurt? I'll try it. And her simple instruction to me was to sit still every morning for 20 minutes and focus on my breathing. And I thought, that can't be so hard. I can totally do that. I'll start. So the first morning, I sat down. I put a little timer on for 20 minutes. And after three minutes, Philip, I can't tell you, I was crawling out of my skin. First of all, I was physically still in withdrawal from alcohol. So it was very physically uncomfortable to sit still for that long. And my negative thoughts, it's not like they went away. It was just eating me alive inside. And I could not sit still for longer than three minutes. But she had told me 20. So every couple of hours... You know, later in the day, I would think, you know, I bet I could sit for another three minutes. A couple hours later, you know what? I bet I could do another three minutes so that at the end of the day, I could call her and say, you know, I did my 20 minutes. Yeah. And that, I know, but, and that's where I had to start. But what's beautiful about that messy kind of way that I started is that it evolved into a new form of meditation, the three by three meditation, three minutes, three times a day, which ended up saving and changing so many other things about my life so it's almost a gift that I couldn't couldn't do how I was instructed you yeah, know but, well that, well that I, yeah. I I love I love the three by three and and that's three minutes of meditation three times a day I love it because I have the same problem with sitting motionless for I mean I think three minutes is pushing it but but twenty <laughs> minutes, I would fall. I would either fall asleep or I'd be wandering around. Um, and, mm. it, and it's partly because of maybe the pace of modern life. And I do think if I dedicated myself to it, I could do it. But the three by three was really a powerful thing. Now, but what I want to I want to do first though mm-hmm. is I want to try to take the mystery out of meditation for the mm. listener. Because, as you said before, the common sort of perception of meditation is somebody, some Buddha sitting in a corner with their, with their legs crossed, contemplating, you know, or uh, a higher spirit or reciting Om or something. And, but, but it's more and more people I talk to are getting, are getting value and benefits from meditation. So... How would you put meditation in common words? I mean, what is it? What does it really mean to you? Mm-hmm. So meditation to me is not something I'm doing to check off my to-do list. Oh, I meditated this morning. For me, it's a state of being. It's a mindset from where to view my world from. It's a conscious choice that I have an internal source of power, peace, and wisdom, which is the 
the greater intelligence of the cells of my body, which is the voice of my intuition. We have constant contact with that all the time, but I think we overemphasize the power of our mind and underemphasize this internal seat of wisdom that we have within of ourselves. And I know that sounds a little spaceship woo-woo to some people. <laughs> I get it. But I know people have had a gut feeling before or a gut reaction or just a knowing or thinking, oh, I'm thinking about my mom. And then she calls on the phone like, oh, that was weird. But we have an intuitive way of being connected to people outside of ourselves or um, you know, events and circumstances. You can also understand it that mindset is so important. I think of meditation as instead of being motivated and gritting my teeth and getting it done that type right. of attitude yeah. when you're in in using a meditation to achieve a goal it's more coming from a place of inspiration and you can use this in terms of like let me use the example of like weight loss or getting in shape right, right. so if you have this goal I want to lose 50 pounds and I want to get in shape like I've never gotten in shape before and you take it on like a challenge and you think okay I can restrict calories I don't have to eat cheesecake anymore I don't have to eat bread anymore whatever you you know your your type of diet is it's like I can do this. I'm strong enough and I can get through the deprivation. Well, when we come at it like that, it's it has a constriction to it. It has a um a feeling of you know, tightness or anxiousness behind it, something like that. Whereas when I needed to lose weight and I came at it with through my meditation, right? So just through my three minutes, three times a day, what happened for me is that my mindset and my relationship with food and exercise changed. So instead of seeing oh my gosh, I have to eat this and I can do this and I can steal up my willpower to do it. Instead of that, it became, I'm actually inspired to do this. That food, that, you know, vegetables or whatever actually looks appealing to me. So you become, you get your mindset in alignment with the result you want to create in your life rather than I hate this, but I can do it anyway type of attitude. Do you see what I'm saying? So it becomes instead of this willpower motivation, it becomes that you're one with what you want to create and you're actually inspired towards this new way of life rather than gritting your teeth. And because willpower can be a good jump start, I'm not denying that. For people just starting out, I think willpower and discipline is effective, but it's kind of like adrenaline. You know, it's right. not sustainable. We can use adrenaline to do amazing things if we're in emergency situations, but that's not meant to be in our system all the time. It's using all of our resources at one particular moment in a crisis. It's kind of the same thing with willpower. We're not meant to sustain it. We can use it as a jumpstart, but it needs to, if we want to sustain it, it needs to switch to inspiration because otherwise we're always going to have this internal battle of, I don't want to, I shouldn't have that cheesecake. Oh, but I want to have that cheesecake. You know, that sort of thing is always going to be going on in our minds. When we take the time in like a meditation practice, to get our mindset in alignment and in agreement with what we want to create, that internal battle disappears and it's so much easier and in flow to be able to achieve our goals. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, you said a lot there and I and I and I wanna I wanna break it down because I think I think you're on to something that is worth um, exploring a little bit, and that is to begin with this idea that in meditation we are sort of focusing on the inside and we're not we're not uh, sort of following the directives from the outside you, we're sort of getting in tune 
with our quote-unquote real selves and what I try to do here is I'm is try to describe meditation without using fancy new age terms and this mm -hmm. this is this is not easy to do but I really think for example that meditation is really a quiet moment of reflection with yourself we we, we talk about I mean it's so similar uh, to to Hinduism and to Buddhism where you sort of like detach yourself from the material world you look inside you you um, find the inner spirit and, and this whole thing all that is true but in the modern world Dina I really think it means looking inside and and having quiet moments of reflection now what I'm trying to to get my 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 arms around here is this alignment with a personal goal mm. because because I think that has some some indications of of visualization to me because it's it seems to me like it's two things you first sort of get peaceful with yourself and then you sort of visualize a goal Maybe it's losing weight. Maybe it's uh, being, you know, having a good interview or running the five thousand kilometer race or whatever you're doing. And then it's sort of like, uh, sort of trying to align that deeply inner self with that goal. So, mm -hmm. so, so, have I put that right, or or do you look at things differently than that? No, I think this is perfect. And I can kind of break it down a little bit more. What's coming to me is because when I encourage people in meditation uh, practice or in achieving goals in their life, for me, meditation isn't just kind of a, a luxury thing to do. It's something that I do for my own internal nourishment. It's as important to me as eating food. It's I'm taking care of my my soul, my emotional state, my mental state. That's what I'm doing in meditation. And so I always encourage people to take it seven days at a time. And I understand what you're saying. Well, I'm going to tie visualization into this too. So with the quieting the mind, that's so important to learn in the beginning because most of the time, our it's like our cup is overflowing. We have so many thoughts in our head. It's, it's just we need to know how to let off steam. We need to know how to empty that cup. When it gets too full and we get overwhelmed or negative thoughts, we need to know how to at will, be able to quiet, to breathe, to distract ourselves with something neutral, looking at a candle flame or, you know, counting backwards in our head, something, a super simple activity that can just de-stress us at the time, let off pressure and steam, right? right? So I think of that as kind of, if you had a field, like your mind was like a field or a, or a planting ground, it's like you're removing the weeds and you're tilling the soil. So that's a very important first step before you're able to put new goals in there. You've got to clear out the old, make the land, you know, nourished and ready to be planted. And then you can start planting seeds of what you want to create in your life, starting with mindset first. That's, that's, that's great. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dina Proctor about her book, Madly Chasing Peace. And we're talking about her concept of these three by three meditations and how one goes about implementing them and using them in the real world now you have these these meditations and we and I've tried I've tried it and I've tried it before and I do think it is it is really 
powerful. What? Uh, but I also think that there's a connection here that we need to make that you make in your book, and maybe we could just talk about it a little bit. And that is, unless we're talking about reality here, uh, we're probably never going to get anywhere. Because to me, the only way what you're talking about works would work, and, and not just you, but anyone who's ever supported meditation, is if, is, is if we are truly connecting to what really is, as if mm -hmm. we, are, we are truly connecting to some higher consciousness. I noticed that you, you and you mentioned that you uh, were an atheist for a while, what what has this meditation practice told you about this whole notion of a higher being, higher consciousness, the force, or whatever? What 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 has it told you? What well, my concept now of I call it kind of source energy. Kind of you may may want to put source with like a capital S. Right. I love the concept of because we are all energy. It's just different wavelengths. It's kind of like you know different spectrums, different wavelengths of light create different colors. Different wavelengths create um, physical matter and physical reality. We start with energy first, and matter is created from there. So the source of everything that we all come from is this source of energy, and and you can really ground that idea when you kind of look at your body. When I look at my body and I see arms and legs and ears and eyes and everything works great, it's like I this body's awesome and it's kind of a miracle that it you know I don't actually understand how all of this works. I don't quite understand how it is that my lungs are exchanging in their cells so that the breathing happens. I don't exactly understand everything about the digestion process. I don't entirely understand how it is that when I fall asleep at night, I still, you know, my body remembers to breathe. Right. So that's what I call God source. You know, it's mm. this energy that has created my body, my reality, all of the beauty and the world around us it's a source and an intelligence greater than myself. I'm not capable. I couldn't, you know, design another human being if you gave me all like spare parts and that yeah. sort of thing. I, it's that grounded, that um, tangible to think of. That's what I think of as that higher source of power, peace, and wisdom. It has an intelligence to it that is greater than my own intelligence, and it's communicated to me through the voice of my intuition. I also believe that's why we have emotions. Our emotions are telling us, are we getting closer and closer to that place of power, peace, and wisdom inside of us, to that intuitive wisdom, or are we disconnected from that? And when you're in suicidal depression, I don't know what could be possibly more <laughs> Or yeah. disconnected from that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it it just there's something that's so great going on in our in our uh, world right now in in this whole sort of I guess it's, I would call it the new spirituality movement, and I I also want to call it a movement in 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 search of a better title than new spirituality, but but which is that we are sort of relearning in different ways the lessons from the past we're putting we're putting those old lessons from from the Upanishads and from Buddhism into our daily lives and we're starting to realize the truths of of the whole of the old uh, Vedantic texts and specifically that Atman or the individual self is one with Brahman which is the united self 
and mm-hmm. that's that's the way they put it in the old days and and you know when we read about eastern religion we think oh man atman brahma isn't that cool but when we go through these meditation practices and when we have these quiet moments with ourselves we feel to be part of a greater unity and that's why I said in the beginning it can't be denied because when you have that spiritual connection nobody nobody is going to talk you out of it they're not going to mm-hmm. say well Dina you're wrong there really isn't this this uh, source you know you're wrong you must be you must have meditated wrong you know yesterday <laughs> or something you must be off on some kind of frolic and detour uh, and so it and and what is so good about this is that I also think that there's a that there's a moral component to it which to me connects with your pre-forgiveness um, and and your your whole sort of uh, soul washing that you went through when you were going through your your rehabilitation and and let me be specific for the listener here and that is that in in her book Dina talks about you know her her transformation from from alcoholism to under to meditation and now being an experienced successful life coach and part of that was uh, was understanding the higher self but also in your relationship with other people and your need that you had to apologize for these these um, I want to I'm going to say these misdeeds or these slights that you did in your past and I mm-hmm. thought that was really amazing where did that come from and why was that important for you to making amends you mean yes yeah to make amends to, yes oh my gosh well in order for me to move forward I knew that I had done things to hurt people specifically in my life I knew I had hurt you know guys that I had dated people that were close to me I knew I had stolen money and it was very clear that you know I needed to go back and make it right that it wasn't right to just kind of leave it. So what I did, I used my meditation to prepare myself mentally and emotionally. I prepared myself mentally and emotionally to be thrown in jail. Had yeah. my, um, you know, the person that I had stolen a whole bunch of money from decided that that would be the right thing. It was kind of, I got into the space of, I know what I did. I can't know exactly how that affected you, but I'm giving you space to tell me how that of how what I did affected you. And the consequences are not up to me. I leave them in your hands because I'm the person that wronged. And not that I'm any kind of martyr or whatever. It's just I just wanted to clean the slate completely and clean it up as best as I could. And the meditations helped me with that. I just got in complete ownership. I wasn't denying. I wasn't justifying. It was like, you know, I was a mess. That was really what I saw from my messed up way of living and seeing, that's what I saw as a solution to my problem at the time. And I own it now and I see how horrible that was and I want to make it right with you. What can I do or what do you see as the best way for me to make it right? And in order to prepare for that, I used my little three-minute meditations to visualize um, potential outcomes and to become in complete non-resistance to whatever they were and that's what kind of pre-forgiveness is. I know forgiveness is a little bit of a charged word but forgiveness to me is about letting go of wrongs done to me 
and forgiveness of myself wrongs that I have done. And it's not condoning or making right or saying, you know what? Oh, no problem. That's okay. Don't you worry about it. It's not, it's not letting it go under the rug or, or anything. What it is, is saying, I know that I've done this wrong or that you've done this wrong, but I am choosing to make my peace with it, to lose my resistance to it. There's no power that I have to change the past or change what I've done even. I can't change it. I can do my best to clean it up. And then where my power is, is in the present moment and in moving forward. So I, I do what I can to clean that up, to make amends, and then I put my power and focus back on who I am present day and build from there moving forward. So forgiveness is about making peace with the past, doing what I need to do to clean it up, and then withdrawing my attention after I've done what I needed to do, not beating myself up anymore about it, not ruminating about it, not being all justified or self-righteous about it, but just letting it go and choosing to focus my attention on where I do have power over, not over the past, but over the present moving into the future. And what I really liked about that, and frankly, I, I cannot remember another book that had that kind of story in it where somebody on this path of enlightenment and excuse the the term but this this <laughs> path of this path of higher awareness has this this um, urge to make amends for past wrongs and what i thought was powerful about that is that my own opinion on this is that of course I do think there's a higher consciousness. I do think there's one consciousness. When you when you real when you truly realize that, or at least when you start going in that direction, it necessarily means that that we are all one, as corny as that may sound. And therefore, in order to to have the benefit of the source, in order to uh, have the the energy of the of the whole or the source you need to clear the slate and this is it's taught in the new testament and it's also people forget that it's also part of buddhism's eightfold path and just for just for um just just to clear just to clear the air i'm not a buddhist by by just in case people are wondering, but I'm I'm trying. Although I think there's a lot of truth in Buddhism, I'm I'm making the connection here to show that that Dina, what you're talking about has an historical foundation to it. Because mm-hmm. in the in the eightfold path of Buddhism, right conduct is is one of the paths. Right conduct, right attitude, and these things. It's not just. It's it's not like somebody outside of you lecturing to you like we're talking about before saying you must you know recite the ten commandments or the pledge of allegiance or whatever and you must be a good person this is something that has to come from the inside because to me morality and higher consciousness go hand in hand and you you can't have one without the other mm-hmm. so that's that's my that's my little spin on it and I, I really I really thought that was that was unusual. And I take it you yourself benefited from doing that. Oh, I can't tell you. The having those conversations lifted me to a, a level of freedom within my own being I've never had before. I mean, it was I was at a point in my life where I had no secrets. And I never knew how powerful that was. You know, like I've heard people say, you're only sick as your secrets and all that kind of thing. And you don't really think about what these secrets are. But 
I, that stealing money, that was a big secret for yeah. me. Yeah. And, you know, other things I had done to people, that was a big secret for me. So cleaning that up and just admitting I was wrong and I own it and I'm willing to do whatever it would take to make it right for you was a huge release of freedom for me. So, you know, just owning where I am and speaking the truth from where I am unapologetically, no no need to spin it to be better. It's like, I, I even think that sometimes because I used to be, Philip, I used to be in my old life when I was so depressed. I was so fakey, fakey, nicey, nicey. Everyone was surprised I was in depression because yeah. I was always faking it all the time and it was exhausting. Yeah. But that was my secret was yeah. I'm secretly depressed. I'm secretly trying to fix this hole inside of myself. And to just be free of that and be like, you know what? I was a drunk. I was depressed. I, it's, there's such a freedom. My insides sang after each of those amends that I made because I just felt completely at one with the source that had created me. It's an ultimate freedom that I experienced from yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I want to say that my own, my own approach as I've, as I've gotten older is that one, one thing that is true about, I think, all of us, including yours truly, is that we're, we're human. Uh, and it it, rem- it reminds me of the of the saying from Nietzsche, you know, human all too human, which is another way to saying that we all make mistakes, we all say things we shouldn't say, or or do something we're not supposed to do, or or uh, hurts or hurt hurt people. But what I've I've done, and I don't know what you would think of this, but I tend to apologize as fast as possible. I clear the air as fast as possible. Because the faster you do it, the the less it drags you down, and so the older <laughs> I the older I've gotten, the faster I apologize. I mean, it's like instantaneous, and so mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I think that that's one thing that I've learned. So so if I ever get around to writing a self help book or or a book like that, I think I have to I have to think of some way to write a whole book on that topic, but I probably won't be able to. But the point is, is that <laughs> it does it it is it is extremely important. This is Philip Muritan. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dina Proctor and her her book and her method of three by three meditations. And Dina, you know, there's a lot of great things in your book, including these uh, these practical uh, tips and games you have at the end. And I think those are a lot of fun and something I haven't seen in other books that much, particularly since your games are short and fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's. But I know that visualization is part of it. Can you just tell us where where does visualization fit into this? You and your in your laundry phobia. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw in the laundry because it's one of the few books I've ever read that talks about the fear of doing laundry, which I think is probably a universal fear. By the way, <laughs> yeah, look, I don't think like anybody. Of, I don't really, think anybody. You know? I think it's right up there with t- with uh, taking the dishes out of a dishwasher. That is, you know, in terms of things that are unpleasant. But where does visualization fit in to this picture? I love this. Okay, great. So visualization, and and I discovered later that all other all these other people teach visualization. It was just for me, kind of intuitive to create it this way. But what what I wanted to start having breakthroughs in my life, and this was largely after I'd had my making amends process. I just felt like I had this empty in a really good way. It was almost kind of like I had cleared the slate. That feeling you have on New Year's morning. It's like, oh my gosh, I have this whole 
you know, clear slate, fresh start type of feeling I had in my life. I'd hit the reboot button and I was ready to move forward. So it was like, what do I want to create here? So I had a few things I wanted to do. Like after I quit drinking a lot, I started eating a lot. I, you know, gone up a couple sizes and I wanted to release that weight. Then there were, um, things at, at one point I wanted to start exercising. I wanted to start running and I wanted to use my meditations to be able to do that visualization. So, um, and then also relationships I have, I've, there's nothing that I've tried visualization on, put it that way, that it hasn't worked for. Wow. So I think anything you dream up under the sun. But to answer your question specifically about visualization, when you have that clean slate, when you've spent seven days, 14 days in meditation and just learning how to quiet your mind, learning how to remove weeds, till the soil, then it's like, okay, it's time to start seed planting. What I do in my visualization is I take whatever I want to create, whether it's, you know, losing 10 pounds or I want to start running because I want to love it, not just because I want to do it and get it done because I think it would be, I quote unquote should. It's like, I want to love this. I want to love yoga. I want to love eating healthy. I want to have a healthy relationship with my body. That's what I would start in my visualization. So I would hold a vision. This is, this is a great one for body was I just turned over and I recognized in myself, you know what? My body indicates when it's hungry. I know what it feels like to feel hungry. And my body, I would imagine that the cells of my body are intelligent enough to know what they're hungry for. So instead of using my head and counting calories and worrying about you know, all this mental stuff and what to feed myself, I said, let me try it a new way. For seven days, I'm just going to open it up. And whenever I feel hungry or whenever it's time to eat, I'll just ask the cells of my body, like tune in and just see if I could get it a reading on what they would most like. And it takes a little trial and error and stuff, but I can do it really well now. And that's what I was visualizing during that time was visualizing myself being at a restaurant and looking at a menu, being at home, opening up the refrigerator and just visualizing that whatever the right food was for that the cells of my body needed would kind of light up for me. It would it would jump out at me in some way and indicate to me, okay, this is what it's going to be. So that was like a visualization that had almost a curiosity to it. It was like, let me make this body connection. And another example of visualization, I wanted to start running, right? So I visualized myself not, I didn't take it on too much because I think sometimes we sabotage by saying, okay, I've never run a day in my life, but I'm going to run uh, two marathons, you right, know, in the next right, three months. Like right. we take on too much. So what I did was I said, you know what? I've got to start small. I'm going to visualize myself successfully running around one block. And then I would sit in my three by three and in my mind's eye, I would put on my, tie my shoes, you know, and then put on the, you know, outfit. And then I would successfully run around one block. And that was the extent of my visualization. And with the laundry, I love that. The, the hatred of the laundry, it's like these mundane chores we need to, we need to do. But every mundane chore, everything we need to do, brushing our teeth, driving to work, these are all opportunities where we can create presence in the moment. If we lose our resistance and really just become present with what we're doing, like doing the laundry, what I did was in my mind's eye, I was picturing, so I'd had su such hatred towards laundry. And it was like, I was just picturing, okay, I'm bringing out the laundry basket. I'm sorting it into several piles. I'm taking that very first pile and going into the washroom, watching the water spin in the bottom, watching the soap mix with the water, form bubbles, put the laundry in, right? When I was picturing that, it almost seemed like a sacred activity. Do you know what I'm saying? It right. had like this simple um, 
simple satisfaction to it that I could do something to take care of myself and take care of my clothes in that way when I was visualizing running, taking care of my body. So the work, the whole point of the visualization is to become non-resistant and even almost, I, I don't know if you want to say excited about doing the laundry, but you know, having a, I don't mind this so much type of feeling towards it. And what happened then when I physically started doing the laundry from more of this kind of state of mind rather than absolute resistance, I still went about it. If anybody looking at the outside, it would look like I was doing the same thing. You know, it's not like I was singing yeah. and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. It would look like all, nothing on the outside changed. But on the inside, I was doing it differently. I was fully present. I was in full appreciation of water being able to flow into this machine. Like who on earth invented that? Brilliant. You know, to watch the bubbles form, to feel the fabric of the clothes against my skin. And no joke, I would end up just in like having tears of absolute satisfaction and oneness with what I was doing. And I wasn't saving the world. I wasn't doing anything huge. It wasn't a giant activity, but it was like, it was the first time I had been that present in doing a simple activity like that. You see, so I was holding the vision of of how I wanted to feel while I was doing the activity in my mind's eye. And then when I felt inspired towards taking the physical action, I would do it then. I wouldn't grit my teeth and get it done, do it from willpower or that sort of thing. It was like, I know that this is cultivating the attitude of inspiration. And when I feel inspired, I will know it. And I vow that I will act on that. Like that's my promise is that when I feel inspired, I promise to act in that moment. And it's a whole different way to live your life from. Yeah, I think that there's and I also think that there's there's truth and legitimacy to this whole approach. And, you know, we, we I think the laundry is sort of a humorous way uh, example, <laughs> but it happens to be real. But what is powerful to me is you combine it with meditation or you combine it with sort of getting rooted in yourself and clearing your head out and then tell the story that's going to make you happy that's mm -hmm. going to put the best spin on something and and not not be influenced by all these negative thoughts coming in from all over the place because mm -hmm. you know that is it is so it is so important and it's sort of like uh, building a, a, a tall building from the from the bottom up anchoring it and if you clean if you clean that bottom foundation and you start with that that solid pure base it puts you more in control of of your life and and that I thought was really uh, important and it's something that you know we we tend to forget about but and it in some some cases it may sound like well this is just too touchy feely for the common <laughs> person but at the end of the day you know this whole notion of higher consciousness uh, a unified energy field god all this stuff is either true or it's not true and those of us who have put all their chips on the it is true spot on the on the board this is the kind of stuff that really proves that we're on the right path when it works for you because mm -hmm. it because at the end it this is all about taking control of our own lives and the way you put it and I I use the same example in my book 
this thing about autopilot versus manual drive. You know, you, you talk about that many of us think we're, we are on autopilot, right, and that somebody else is controlling everything. And, and this, this allows us to sort of take control of ourselves and, and read our own story. So I, so I, I think that that is, I think that's uh, really good stuff. Now, in this other, this other thing I like you to, this other notion I like you to just, while we have some time here, is switching from a gratitude to the smile inside. And because I think a lot of us, I mean, I, there's another book, there's a couple books that talk about these gratitude journals, which sound like a really cool thing, but you have a different twist on it. Can you talk about what is the smile inside and why did you switch from the gratitude to the smile inside? Okay, um, great question. I think there's a, totally a place for gratitude. But what, what, what I noticed from my own personal experience is whenever I went to make a gratitude list, <clears throat> it became more of a list that I felt guilty taking for granted. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was yeah. like I would make a list of like, oh, I have plenty of food. Oh, I have a roof over my head. Oh, I have a car. And then I would start focusing on, oh, my God, there's so many people that don't have food and don't have cars and don't have a place to live. And I felt worse after making my gratitude list yeah. than I did. Right. Yeah. So that's that's I, I wasn't doing it right. So I needed to create something that would resonate with me. And so what I decided to do instead, because I knew that the thing was about feeling better. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I instead look at what it has and coaching someone else actually helped me come up with this idea. It was like, why don't you think of something that made you smile inside today? Like what was great? Was there, you know, the example I used was like sitting at a restaurant having lunch and there's like a little baby across the room that's just kind of looking at you and giggling. Like that's cute. That's a that's a touching moment. That's a smile inside or someone holding a door for you when you have so many groceries in your arms and just saying, you know, have a beautiful day. And it's like, that person didn't need to be so nice. That really touched me. That made me smile inside. And so instead of feeling guilty for the stuff I was taking for granted, which, you know, was my weird interpretation of a gratitude mm -hmm. list, this smile inside thing connected me very powerfully in an emotional state. And that got me to a place of gratitude. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm so like grateful and blessed in my life that I've had these moments today that made me feel amazing where I connected with great people who were generous and funny and happy and that would get me to the place of gratitude yeah, you know of just yeah. appreciation of my existence and of what life was about and little moments during my day yeah and I I think we could all benefit from tips like these because as as I said earlier the fact of the matter is, is that life is not easy, and and all this, you know, all these lessons and and the uh, concepts and the theories are great. Atman and Brahma and Nirvana and Samsara and and Buddhism, etc. But unless you put the practices to daily lives, to your daily life, it may not have the power that they deserve. So my last question for you, Dina, is of all the of all the lessons and the instructions you've given um, in in your coaching, what what one or two uh, tips would you leave the listener with on things that they could take away? 
No, sorry. Great question. Um, one tip is, I would say, is take it seven days at a time. Don't over overwhelm yourself with a huge commitment. If you want to try out three by three or some other meditation practice, I mean, if I was able to listen to instructions, three by three wouldn't even exist. So I, I do yeah. not by <laughs> any means think it's the be all end all. So, but if you want to try out a practice like this or a new exercise regime or a new way of, you know, kind of a relationship with food in your body or visualizing yourself public speaking or whatever it is, just take it seven days at a time. And I say that because seven days is manageable. If you get to day three or four and it just sucks and you're right. like, I don't think I can make it, you can remind yourself, you know what? I've only got three, four days left. I right. can do this. I'm yeah. okay with this. That's where your power is, is being able to be consistent with it. And when you're able to do it for seven days, take your temperature at the end of those seven days. How did this work? What didn't work? What do I want to tweak? Refresh what you need to refresh and then commit to another seven days. So that's my first tip is just take it seven days at a time. And my second tip it, or, or real truth to remember is that anything that you want to create in your life is absolutely possible. And if you're able to do the work to get your mindset in alignment with it, to see yourself doing it successfully, to absolutely see no matter how small it is or no matter how big it is, to be able to really believe that that inner source of wisdom and intelligence inside of you can give you the direction you need in the moment that you need it, there is no limit I believe there is no limit to the way the body can heal for what the abundance you want to manifest to the impact you can have on other people's lives. I believe that our leverage on creation is limitless. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And your website, uh, Dina, is is what again? It's it's uh it's madlychasingpeace.com. Okay. And once again, Dina, thank you for uh what I, I had a I had a really good time with this conversation and I want <laughs> I want to uh, you know underscore the the point that on this show I try to bring people that are going to open minds but also with with new ideas but also at the same time uh, help us all try to incorporate these these new ideas these enlightening thoughts into into our into our lives uh, you know I go back to what I said earlier about Joseph Campbell. Uh, comment about all of life is a meditation, most of it unintentional. And I think really what we're trying to do is we're trying to control our inner states to make our lives intentional, to direct our own selves on the better path, the higher path for the ultimate purpose of having a better time and being happier. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Dina, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. You too. Thank you so much, Philip. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Mirton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 